following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Yvonne and I lived in the city of Portland, Oregon, and Portland's a smaller city in the United States scheme of things, and we only had one pro sports team, and that was the Trailblazers, so I was a Blazer fan for over 20 years, and uh, I got there just after they had won a championship with Bill Walton as a center, and so they built this philosophy around that the best way to have a good team that would be a championship caliber would be to have the tall guy, the big man, in the middle. Well, Bill Walton, that was his last time, and I never really got to see him play much. And they kept on stumbling around trying to get the kind of combination of players that would really work. So I lived in Portland, Oregon during the 1984 debacle. And that was when the Trailblazers decided they've got to go all out for the draft. They've got to get a big man. And there wasn't anybody that they thought that would be their number one choice. But they really liked this guy named Patrick Ewing who played for Georgetown. And uh, he wasn't going to come out until the next year, so they tried to influence him, uh, wine and dine the guy to get him to come out early. And when he didn't want to, they really put the full-court press on the guy, and the NBA found out about it. And they fined the Portland Trailblazers a quarter million dollars for trying to influence this guy for the 1984 draft. Uh, That was bad enough when all of us who were fans said, man, if you can't do it right, don't do it at all. Don't do anything dishonest. So they they finally got themselves in a position where they were going to be they were tied for first with the first round choice in the '84 draft, and they were tied with of all teams the Houston Rockets, and so it came down to a coin toss who would actually pick first either the Houston Rockets or the Trailblazers, and when it came down to the to the coin toss, the Trailblazers somebody decided oh let's call tails, and of course they tossed the coin and it came out heads, so the Rockets got the first pick and they picked this guy. You probably never heard of him. His name was Hakeem Olajuwon. And uh, so that was the second big debacle who ever called tails. And all of us in Portland, Oregon at the time were groaning. But at least we got the second choice. So after they picked Olajuwon, it came time for the Blazers to make their choice. And so we chose a guy named Sam Bowie. You probably never heard of Sam Bowie. But uh, the reason why Sam Bowie is so famous is because the third team to pick were the Chicago Bulls. And the Chicago Pools picked this guy you probably never heard of called Michael Jordan. So there were three big choices that the Trailblazers made in 1984 that all of us who lived there and were big fans of the Trailblazers kept thinking to ourselves, we've been kicking ourselves now probably for 20 20 or 30 years ever since those bad choices were made. Uh, And and we look back now and people will say they will defend those choices. Well, we were after a big man, uh, even though we didn't even know how good Jordan would be, we still were after a big man because their decision to make a choice based upon predetermined criteria forced them into a decision that really was not the best under the circumstances. Over and over again, we see illustrations when we make choices today that set us up for failure tomorrow. If our choices today are compromised or they're poor choices, we will suffer the consequences. So it's absolutely critical that we learn to make good decisions today. And that's not so much that we have to be afraid of those decisions. We just have to be able to assess, trust God, make sure that we have him involved with all the decisions for our tomorrow so we don't suffer consequences. Very early on in my life when I was just trying to make uh, two nickels to rub together, I would spend some time with people who are very good in the building trade. 
So I spend time helping them as just a guy who wasn't even an apprentice. And they taught me how to do things like rough carpentry and how to do some sheetrocking. And I remember working with a with a master sheetrocker, and he was putting up this stuff, and he was mudding things, sanding the thing. I was amazed at how fast he can get it up, but then how good he can make it look, especially when I compared it with what I was doing. And I remember one of the great skills that he told me, he says, Bruce, one of the hardest things for us as sheetrockers is when you have someone go before you who's a rough carpenter, and they can't even spell the word square, let alone make a square unit so that we can come in after them and do our jobs quickly. So if they do a lousy job before we get here, we have to fix it so that their job cannot be seen and will not compromise the quality of the building. Those who make decisions in advance cause decisions afterwards in the lives of other people either to be easy or to be very, very difficult. The United States Army uh, with Cold Industries came up with this amazing weapon called the M14, and they sent it out with our troops to Vietnam in order to fight uh, the battles that they were in. And on paper, it was a great weapon. And uh, even in the field, it was a great weapon, but they missed a couple of little details that they overlooked, and I don't know whose decision it was. Still to this day, they can't figure out whose decision it was not to train the men how to use this. And second, in that training that they had, which was minimal, they never trained them how to clean the gun. And they didn't provide with them that, not only not that training, but they didn't provide with, to them the implements necessary to keep the gun clean. Keep this gun clean, and it's incredibly dependable. And no matter what happens in battle, you could always trust it. But since they did not have the training, they did not have the cleaning supplies, and the guns got dirty, they were frequently known to be jamming all the time. And all they really needed was this one little kit. Someone made a bad decision. On the basis of that bad decision, other terrible things happen as a result of that. Well, this leads us into today's lesson in Joshua 15 to 17, because it's all about bad choices today set us up for disaster tomorrow. So if we can learn two things from this lesson today about choosing well and then finishing, choosing well and then finishing, making good decisions and making sure we never quit until the job is done and done correctly. In Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, this is what the scripture says. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb Hebron. From Hebron, Caleb drove out three Anakites, and Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksah in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksah to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Now, I suppose at the outset, such things like this historically don't mean a whole lot to us. It sounds like they're just trying to get through the historical episodes that occur. But there's some amazing principles and lessons that God teaches us from this simple narrative. First of all, notice Caleb's attitude. When Caleb was given the land, he didn't say, man, this is is this all I get? He didn't complain about it. He didn't criticize it. He didn't point out all the things that were wrong with the land that was a part of his inheritance. He says, oh, this is what I get. Well, let's see what we can do with it. And what he could do with it was he overcame three of the Anakite kings. 
And from there, he did something very special. He says, well, this is our land. Let's see if we can expand it. Overcome the enemies that are in front of us, then expand the property that God has given to us for influence. Two great initiatives on the part of Caleb. Remember those, because in juxtaposition, that is side-by-side comparisons, we see Caleb never complaining, assessing what he got, taking what he got with satisfaction, and then expanding the borders. That's in contrast with what's going to happen with a number of other tribes that follow afterwards. Amazing thing, when somebody lives their life by faith and makes really good decisions, their life is incredibly infectious to the lives of other people around them. Even someone like Othniel, who was his nephew. Othniel got charged up because of Caleb's motivational example. And he took the challenge that Caleb gave, took some land, and Caleb then honored him with the marriage to his daughter. Special relationship, even though the daughter asked her husband, Othniel, which was correct, for the responsibility to ask her father, his father-in-law, for some more property that would give them springs of water so that they could enjoy their land for a long time. After her husband agreed, she went and took the initiative and went to her father on her own. Something about a daughter and a father who have a great relationship, when that father is wrapped around her daughter's little finger, even as great a tremendous champion as Caleb was, he responded to the sweetness of a father-daughter relationship. I have only one daughter, and that one daughter, she can have whatever she asks of her daddy, and I'm more than happy to give it to him, give it to her, and her husband is always in the background smiling no matter what it is that she asks for. So there's another passage of Scripture in strong contrast to this, and that is with regard to Judah. And when Judah was given the land, they could not take out the Jebusites who were living there. And because they could not, we often have to to ask ourselves a question as we compare and contrast. Is it could not or were they not willing? Is there a determination to conquer or is there not? The Jebusites were there, and that was part of the responsibility. When God gives us a charge, we are to conquer it. We are not to complain about it. We are not to find some way in which to compromise with it. God wants us to take charge of whatever responsibility is given to us. The Jebusites would not be removed from the city of Jerusalem, that great city today. Strong contrast with Caleb, who saw the enemy, kicked the enemy out, and expanded his territory. Gentlemen, as men of God, as people who are warriors at heart, when God has given us a territory, will we take it, and will we see the potential to expand it? If we take what God gives us, and by the initiative and the gifts that he's given to us, we expand it, there's something about a warrior's heart that's represented in that great example by Caleb. Not just how we start, it's how well we finish. There's a determination, there's a confidence, and there's an assertiveness that comes when we take the Caleb approach to God's will in our life. So just think about the jobs you're going to go to after this is all over. Is it just survive the day? Is it just get through the day? Or is it somehow to take what God has given to us? conquer it, and expand the potential of what we can do with God's will in our routine. 
That's an amazing challenge for each and every one of us. Joshua 16, we have a double dose of this unable to take what in the world God has given to them and master the privilege of God's responsibility given to an individual. One of the things we notice here is that failure in faith is just as contagious as faith that trusts God for the courage to overcome whatever challenges God gives to us. If we fail, if we do nothing but simply survive, that inability to make today count will infect the lives of people that we are influencing. And gentlemen, we're not here to change the city of Houston. We're here to unleash the Spirit of God to change the city of Houston. But if the people don't see the Spirit of God alive in us, but just see us surviving, cowering under the pressure, unable to make decisions, ineffective with regard to courage, what kind of spiritual influence is that? Facts of not dislodging the Canaanites simply because they were a stubborn enemy. You are here today, and one of the great challenges that you are facing is stubbornness on the part of others or stubbornness on the part of circumstances. If we fail to overcome that, where God has put us, we are either just trusting ourselves with that inability or we're failing to look to see what God can do through us. We have a resilient foe. No one who's called to live a life of faith will do anything but face a foe that's incredibly capable. Faith is never easy. Faith is always about challenging what we can trust in Almighty God to do through us. Now, it's possible for us, and we can always have good excuses or at least excuses that sound good. And sometimes when we fail, it's we, we know whether it's because of our effort or our lack of courage or a lack of trust. And we could talk ourselves into believing that the end result of just surviving the day and not overcoming was all that was possible. If we simply justify our inabilities, we can convince people, but it's not necessarily the same as convincing God that we have done what he wants us to do. Don't settle for justification for our inability to take what God has given by faith. Never justify our inability to take what God has given to us only by faith. In Joshua 17, we have a very special little vignette here, and it's one that I wanted to bring to your attention if I could talk fast enough in the first part of the lesson to get to this. Zolophahad had no sons but only daughters. They went to Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the leaders, and said to this trio, The Lord, Yahweh, you notice all the letters are capitalized, the God who makes promises and keeps them, this Jehovah God commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. These are five women speaking. So Joshua gave them an inheritance along with the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. No deliberation, no discussion, no debate. Manasseh's share consisted of ten tracts because the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh received an inheritance among the sons. God, he is a great advocate for women. And you will oftentimes hear non-believers or those who are ill-read in the scriptures speak about selective examples about how God is chauvinistic and how he favors men over women. And they'll pick out all these examples from the Old Testament. They will never pick this one out. 
So if you man, can keep this in the back of your mind, when someone tries to trip you up by saying the God of the Old Testament is favorable toward, toward men and unfavorable toward women, just say, well, what about, what about Joshua? And how he, what he did to Zolophad's daughters? And how Joshua didn't debate it, but simply gave these women an inheritance that was not only just a savory appetite, but an incredible inheritance that God would only give to a man. Because God is the best thing that ever happened to women. So don't forget this particular part. No sons, just five daughters. Hey, what do you know? The picture is all five Asian women. I wonder how that happened. He went through the proper channels, and he made a calm claim for the land, and Joshua granted their request, and it demonstrates God's incredible favor toward women. Please remember this in in Joshua, in this incredible passage, a very small vignette, but proof, nevertheless, tangibly, that not only God, but the priesthood and one of the greatest leaders in the nation of Israel's history favored women. And it wasn't just the bias of God toward men. In Joshua 17, we have the Manassites also were, the people from Manasseh were also unable to occupy the lands because the Canaanites were there. And this is a great lesson. Uh, the, the, the people from Manasseh will say, hey, we, we got the land. Oh, oh, sure, we've got a few few remnants left, but that's not bad. We got the land. We, we've got it outlined, and we've got a few of the people who are left over. But hey, the big picture is we got the land. Now, that was not sufficient. When we are facing a determined enemy, it is very, very important that disobedience never allows for a spin on the end result. The end result is exactly what God asks us to do an offer with a limited solution. God is never happy when obedience is only partial. Partial obedience is no obedience at all when it comes to what God asks us to do. Now, in a very large section of Scripture here, uh, Joshua finally speaks up against those who are whining and complaining. Have you ever noticed that there's nowhere in Scripture where godliness is all about complaining and whining? Never about criticizing what I get or what I didn't get. It's always about, wow, this is what I get. Well, let's see what we can do with it. And once we possess it, we will expand it. So there's a great lesson through this entire passage of Scripture. Joshua takes his own, the own argument by these who are complaining, and he just simply says to them, do what is right. And if that great check mark is there, if you are so numerous, then take your numbers and figure out your advantage and use your own resources to accomplish your tasks. Go up and clear the land for yourselves. Get it done. It's not what we get. It's what we have now the privilege to do and demonstrate with what God gives to us. The reward of God giving to us is not in itself an end. It is an opportunity to demonstrate what God could do through us to actually expand our territories. And God promises if we are obedient in this, It will be ours. He will give it to us. That is an incredible assurance. Those who live a life of obedience get God's tremendous promise of assurance. Now, if we we do something the right way, uh, it's going to work. If we try to take shortcuts, it's not going to work too well. And I don't know if you recognize this picture or not, but this is uh, the inside of a a hotel in, uh, in middle America, and the construction of this hotel had these three sky bridges in it. And the sky bridges were the second 
the third and the fourth floor. The sky bridge on the second and the fourth floor were on top of each other. Now, the amazing thing is these walkways were 120 feet long, and uh, they were not only 120 feet long, but when you weigh the dead weight of these skywalks, they were 64,000 pounds. And the problem is, is that in the engineering development of these sky bridges, the design was for the suspended sky bridge on the fourth floor to be held, uh, suspended in the air, and the engineering allowed for the dead weight and about that only. There was a minimum standard for building inspection, and so it would pass. The problem was the design was approved, but in the process of getting the design to the actual builders, someone took a shortcut. And they decided in the process of this shortcut that they would make sure that why waste all of this energy of suspending the fourth bridge by itself when we can take this one suspension strain here and attach it to the second floor bridge as well. Well, if this was the original design that this particular beam was to hold the fourth floor sky bridge all on its own, and that in itself was minimum, what's going to happen if you attach the second floor to the same beam? It's going to put twice the dead weight load on that beam. And during the celebration of a great, remarkable event, on that particular event, the lives of people were standing on the fourth, the third, and the second floor sky bridge. And because someone took a shortcut here and built it this way, the fourth floor bridge that came from there to where we're standing in the picture, it collapsed onto the second floor bridge. And the fourth floor onto the second floor bridge crashed onto the floor of the hotel, killing 114 people. All because someone made a decision and thought it was a good decision, but it was a compromising decision, and people's lives ended up dead. If we make bad decisions at the beginning and we feel good that we made a good decision, it can never work out well if we take shortcuts. The most important lesson from Joshua 15, 16, and 17 is we should learn that we must finish what we start. It's how we finish, not how we start. In 1983, they had this amazing race called the Ultra Marathon in Australia from Melbourne to Sydney. And it's a a race of about 544 miles. Why anyone will want to run a race like that? I have no clue. But of all things, there were, uh, there were some people actually showed up to run the race. And uh, there were only 11 competitors. But the most interesting competitor was a guy who was uh, 61 years old. His name was Cliff Young. And Cliff Young, 61 years old, was one of the 11 competitors. Um, he's probably about the same age as some of us and probably a lot older than a lot of us. But can you imagine being 61 years old and showing up for a competition it's going to run 544 miles. And he, he showed up with a, a T-shirt, and he showed up with his shorts that he wears. He's a potato farmer. And the shoes that he had were not very fancy. And all the other competitors were dressed in their support team garments with all the fancy colors, and they were brand new, and brand new shoes. And they all looked like they knew what they were doing. And good old, good old Cliff was there, kind of, how you doing, how you doing, real friendly farmer-like. And he stood in the back of the group. And people were making fun of him. Not only the other competitors were making fun of him, but also the people who were there to cover the race. 
And uh, when the gun went off, the other competitors took off, and Cliff took off on his own. And, and uh, before you know it, it was not a couple hours later, and Cliff was way behind, and all the other competitors were running the pack. And the, the longer they ran, the further Cliff fell behind. But at the end of the first day, uh, all the other competitors got to a, to, to a spot, and they all chose to spend the night, so they all went in, got refreshed, and they went to sleep. And when Cliff finally caught up to where all the other guys had gone to sleep, he did something that no one else expected. He kept on running. And they really don't call it a run. In fact, today you might have heard of the Cliff Young Shuffle. Because Cliff Young would be on a farm raising potatoes and raising sheep, and he didn't use a helicopter to herd the sheep. He didn't use a horse to herd the sheep. He ran in gumboots throughout the mountains of Australia, herding the sheep on his own. He just figured that was the fastest way to get things done. Gumboots, running in the mountains of Australia, herding his sheep for decades. And he didn't really run all out like we would run in a race, but he developed this kind of shuffle that he would just keep going and going and going and going and making sure that he can keep up with the sheep, keep up with the dogs, and make sure that he could protect what in the world was going on. The next morning on the second day of the race, all these other competitors got up and they never did see Cliff, but someone told him, hey, Cliff already passed you last night. He decided not to sleep and he continued to run all night long. By the time these guys got on the road for the second day of this ultra marathon, Cliff was five hours ahead of all the other racers. And every single day after that, Cliff kept on running. And every single day he got another mile ahead, another hour ahead, Another mile ahead, another hour ahead. While these guys kept on going to sleep at the end of every day, Cliff kept cutting his sleep time short. So that on the first ultra marathon in Australia, with the Cliff Young Shuffle in 1983, 544 miles with 11 runners at 61 years old, as a profession of a potato farmer, others would run while Cliff slept, shuffling along with something he had developed as someone who was watching sheep. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, he won the race. Ten hours ahead of the next competitor. Gentlemen, if you could ever remember the Cliff Young Shuffle, it should be a reminder that how we finish far more important than how we begin. And how we begin is not to fuss, not to whine about what we don't have, but to recognize that God has given to us a challenge and an opportunity to demonstrate obedience to him. And immediate total obedience is the only obedience that God knows. We don't justify what we cannot do, we don't weep or whine underneath the challenge that lies before us. We don't look at what somebody else has and says, how come we don't have it as easy as they do? We take what God gives to us, knowing that if we are faithful to him, he will be faithful to us and overcome and accomplish the challenge and the task at hand. How we finish is far more important than how we begin. And today's choices no matter how challenging or difficult, we make sure those are good choices because bad choices today are tomorrow's disasters. 
but wise choices today. Trusting in God can become his glory and for his honor in the days to come. Have a great time around your table talks. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.